If you have your Bible, you can open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 25. If you're using a pew Bible, I think it's on page 1075. If not, just turn one page over and I think, I think you'll get it. If you're here this morning, you're new to the Bible, we're glad you're here. Opening a Bible is going to help you as we, as we look at God's Word. The, the large number is the, is the chapter. Small number is the verses. And so as we point out verses, you can find it with the, with the numbers there. Let me pray before we begin. Our Father, we pray now and we ask you that you would permit me to faithfully preach. God, we pray that you would give us all hearts to hear and receive what you say. And in any weakness in, in what I would say, God, we pray that you would speak louder and you would show us Jesus, and he would have us as his. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. penned an article in Ebony Magazine arguing for nonviolence as the way forward. This is some of what he wrote there. He said, the American racial revolution has been a revolution to get in rather than to overthrow. We want to share in the American economy, the housing market, the educational system, and the social opportunities. This goal in itself indicates that social change in America must be nonviolent. If one is in search of a better job, it does not help to burn down the factory. If one needs more adequate education, shooting the principal will not help. Or if housing is the goal, the only building in construction will produce that end. To destroy anything, person or property, can't bring us closer to the goal we seek. The nonviolent strategy has been to dramatize the evils of our society in such a way that pressure is brought to bear against those evils by the forces of goodwill in the community and change is produced. Powerful words with huge implications and a huge impact. Now, according to the passage that we have before us today, my question for us, perhaps to consider in the back of your mind, is was he right? How do you do good in an evil world while also honoring authority? How do you do justified protest? Is civil disobedience ever allowable? These are not easy questions. We can give quick answers, but how you get there and how you work that out is always complicated, especially if you're asking, what does the Bible tell us to do? And you're letting that be your guide. Our passage this morning tells us That we ourselves, we need to do this. We need to let our service to God be good in every situation. If you take notes, you could write that down as the main thing that you and I need to be pressed, have pressed into our hearts. Let your service to God be good in every situation. Two big ideas to help frame Frame our, frame our argument here. Number one, we have to know the battle plan. That's verses 11 and 12. 
know the battle plan. And that one will be much shorter than the main thing. The second thing, which is be subject to Jesus. Be subject to Jesus. That's verses 13 to 25. And when we're there, I'll give you three sort of headings that follow along the passage. So let your service to God be good in every situation. To do that, we have to know the battle plan and we have to be subject to Jesus. Let's read our passage beginning in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What is the battle plan? Well, he's been, in, in, as we've been following along in Peter's letter to these churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey and the surrounding region there, these people were being persecuted and treated as exiles and foreigners, resident aliens in their own country. But he reminds them that though the society is treating you this way, though you live in an unjust environment, you're actually chosen by God. You belong to him. And you have a special status with him that he, you remember, look at verse 9 of this chapter, and he sums up what he's been saying here. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession." So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a special status as the people of God who he's just been teaching in this cha- earlier in this chapter. Make up the new eschatological temple where God himself dwells. That's us. And so that is supposed to frame our identity as we live in a world that doesn't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So the first thing that you, ha- you and I have to realize is that we, we belong somewhere else. That's why in verse 11, he says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and, exi- and exiles. Notice here he brings both of the words he wants to use to describe us into the same sentence. You're a stranger and an exile. The neighbor across the street who used to be your friend sees you as a stranger now. I don't know who you are anymore now that you follow Jesus. You're, you're, you're one of them now, right? Peter says, own it. And as a, as, a, as, a, as a badge or sort of an identity marker that you do own it, he tells us two things in verse 11 and 12. The first one, he says, he says to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. You know that one of the things he's been advocating for throughout the letter, and he's going to do this all the way to the end of the letter, that if we belong to the Lord, if we're citizens of heaven, then our conduct should look like that country. We should have all the customs. We should have the language. We should have the dress. We should have the attitude and the accent of the country that we belong to. And so he's very concerned with the way in which we act. And that is a primary concern here in these, in these verses. He's laid this big theological foundation. And at the end of chapter 1, he started to turn and he, gave us, he started to call us to leave our former ways. And now what he wants to do is he wants to put in front of us the new ways. He wants to hold out in front of us, if you're going to leave behind the former ways that we inherited, the cultural patterns of life without Jesus, well then now we need to pick up the cultural patterns of life with Jesus. And so beginning here, he begins to address that. And as you're going to see, he addresses it across the board. He does it with, uh, the, in the civil environment. He does it in economic environments. He does it in the domestic sphere, in our homes. And then he's going to expand it to the general application of just life in general in this world. So all the areas of our life, if you belong to Christ, are touched by the identity that you have in Jesus. So the Christianity that sort of offers a ticket out of hell and into heaven with with nothing in between is not the kind of Christianity that Peter would have recognized. What Peter is advocating for in the Christianity that he recognizes is a transformation of living. This is where, you know, we talk about the Reformation heritage that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith, but we're never saved with a faith that is apart from works. So if you have genuine faith, it's going to transform who you are. So he says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Now, you'll notice when he says that they wage against the soul, it is a reminder that the primary battlefield that you and I are going to fight living as Christian is first and foremost where? It's in the heart. It's in the heart. We tend to always think it's with that guy or that girl or that rude person over there or this situation. All those things may affect us, granted, But what's happening as we interact with that is our hearts are coming out. And what Peter's advocating, what he's urging us to do is abstain from the desires of the heart that pull you away from the pattern of Christ. There's a pattern we're supposed to follow. So he says, abstain that. Do the battle of the heart so that you can fight and you can live. 
The other thing he tells us is, is in verse 12. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. If we had one adjective to describe the way that God wants us to live in this world, here it is. The word is honorable. Or you could just say good. Now, good, undefined, is, is somewhat vague, right? So we understand that, you know, as Jesus said, they approach Jesus, they call him good teacher. He says there's only one who is good, right? So, so the identity and personhood and character and nature of God is what defines what is good. And so what is honorable is what, whatever matches up with the character and nature of God. And we know who he is and what, that, what those things are because he tells us both throughout all of Scripture, but here he's going to give us some practical things to think about, of how, how to live honorably. But he wants us to conduct ourselves in this way among the Gentiles. And you'll notice there the phrase among the Gentiles is just another way in which he's referring to Gentile Christians here who have now become followers of Jesus. They, they now think of their Gentile neighbors as those outside the people of God because they have become part of the people of God. So, in other words, he's saying, while you live in this world, as long as you're going to be in the world full of people that don't follow the Lord, you're going to have to conduct yourself somehow. And the way in which we're supposed to conduct ourselves is honorably. Now, notice how he, how he helps us here. He says, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. This should remind you of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Right after he gives the Beatitudes, he talks about being, being the light of the world, right? And in that context, in the Beatitudes and in that context of being the light of the world, he talks about how if you're going to obey him, you're going to live as a kingdom citizen. You're going to live in a world that is sometimes going to persecute you. Sometimes they're going to just revile you and slander you and say things against you because, simply because you're trying to follow Jesus. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, what's going to happen is your life, if you're, if you're conducting yourself honorably, your life is going to mirror God. And that's going to bring conviction in people's lives. They're going to see you follow Jesus. They're going to see you obey his commands. And they're not going to like it. And, and in many ways, it has a lot less to do with you. And it's more just their own hearts. Because, because our, a life that reflects the person of God is convicting to sin that's against God. So he reminds them that you and I are supposed to live in a way that we, that we do good works that are before God. But notice, he says, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day when he visits. When will it happen that people will recognize that if you're following Jesus, this is the good thing, this is the right thing? What well, we hope, some of that will happen in this life. And some of the testimonies in this very room are, are in fact that. I met Christians. I saw something different. I began to hear about Jesus. I wanted to follow him. That's what he's talking about. That's going to happen. But in truth, most people are not going to stop and think about the things that you're doing. And notice what you didn't do. And notice what you did do or the way you responded in that situation. And then follow the line that goes back to their relationship with God. Most people are not going to do that. So when is that going to happen? It's going to happen when Jesus appears. There is a day of visitation when Jesus himself is going to see every person eye to eye. And every person in that day 
will observe the good works and they will then glorify God. That's part of the confession. We, we read from or we cited together Philippians 2 this morning together that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Part of that whole confession that's going to happen will be un, the unbelieving world seeing finally with clear eyes what was right and good. And they will affirm it. That's why the scriptures all the way through say that, say that the one who is in the Lord will never be put to shame. So the battle plan is that we would, out of our new identity, abstain from fleshly desires and in place of that, begin to adopt the pattern of Jesus, which is living honorably in the world. Now, in what follows are are various categories that he wants to give us practical examples for, and they're very meaningful things in our lives. These are all areas that you and I have to be subject to Jesus in. That's our second thing that we're going to spend most of our time on in verses 13 and following. But I just want you to see that this this word subject, we're going to define it here in just a minute. But just notice verse 13. He says, submit, it's the same word, submit yourself or submit to every human authority because of the Lord. And then if you jump down to verse 18, he says, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence. And then in chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. And then notice the idea is still present in verse 7 of chapter 3 when he says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then in verse 8, you'll notice that he broadens it. And the word is not there, but the concept is, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. And then all the way in verse 22 of chapter 3, notice how the same theme is still present. But now he's talking about Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. The entire context of any submission in life is is the context of Jesus first submitting to the Father and then through that submission being glorified and all things being brought into submission to Jesus. So that if you're a Christian this morning, what you are saying is you're saying with your mouth and your testimony, I'm following Jesus. You're saying, I'm submitted to Jesus as the king. And you see that in in, um, a very plain and obvious way in verse 16. I want you to see what what he says about us here. He says, submit as free people... Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. We like the terms that elevate us and tell us that we are part of a new eschatological temple, that we're a chosen race, a special possession. But perhaps we might chafe when we hear a word like this and we see that the Bible says that this is what we are to God. The word is... Dulos, and it literally means slave. He's pulling from the imagery of, of the institution of slavery to describe our relationship with God, that we have a master. We have someone that we call Lord. He owns us, and we happily belong to him. And, and because we happily belong to him, we, we serve him. In a Roman context, it means that you have a master, and that's what it means here. But there's also an Old Testament background that brings it into a much richer background for us in this context. 
Because in the Old Testament background, being God's slave is a place of honor. You remember Israel was a slave to Egypt. God rescued them out of that in order to bring them into a relationship with him. Being a slave to God meant being free from anybody else's slavery. And in that same context throughout the Old Testament, those saints of old that served God faithfully that we look up to were called God's servants. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word, slave. Moses was God's slave or servant. David was God's servant. And we saw how he served God in in the reading earlier. Elijah was known as God's servant. Now, another way that you could fill this out is by just looking at the last verse of chapter 2. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Another way you could describe the way we exist before God is that we're, we're like sheep, but we have a shepherd. We have returned to him. In other words, our lives are not our own. Our lives are never our own. Part of the reason people who don't want to ultimately come to the Lord is because in some way people know intuitively it means that my life won't belong to me. And I kind of like living for me. And what God is saying in, in, in so many words like this is that if you are going to come to God, if you're going to belong to the Lord, you're going to have to submit yourself to him. And you're going to have to acknowledge that he is actually the king and not, and not you or me. And the independence you long for is actually an independence that leads to destruction. But the freedom that's found by being God's slave leads to life. It's the world turned upside down. The point, of course, is to frame our existence in a foreign country. We are here as a slave of Jesus, right? We belong now to a different place. We're citizens of another country. And so what you and I are supposed to see ourselves as in this world is we're servants of the Lord. We've been dispatched from another kingdom into this world to do his bidding, to do his service. We, what's the purpose of our life? The purpose of your life is to serve Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you, maybe, perhaps you haven't even asked that sort of trite way of asking it, what's the point of my life uh, recently? Well, let me just give you an answer to that. God is saying that the point of your life is that you would come to Jesus, you would put yourself up under him, and you'd live your whole life for him. That's the purpose of life. There's a lot of other details that go with that, but that's what God wants you to hear, and he wants, you to invite, he wants to invite you to that, that life of freedom. The word that he uses throughout all of this is this word submit. So what does that mean? Well, submission literally means to put yourself under Put yourself under. And you'll notice as you meditate on this, and we'll get another chance next week to think about this as well in a little bit different, uh, different angle, but it's voluntary and it's a matter of the heart. Submission is a, is a voluntary action that you choose and it comes from the heart. Before you do any other actions in your life, the heart itself is given over to God. One commentator uh, argued that obedience in this, in this, uh, throughout Peter's letter is reserved for a more radical commitment. And so throughout Peter's letter, it's, it's reserved for a personal commitment to Jesus, the word obedience. So notice, just look at, look at chapter 1, verse 2. 
towards the end of that verse, he says, we've been chosen and sanctified by the spirit. And then he says to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13 or 14, remember he, he calls us obedient children. Chapter one, verse 14, we are obedient children. And then in chapter two, last week we saw in verse eight that Jesus, when he is rejected, becomes a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And then notice what he says there. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. They were destined for this. Obedience belongs to Jesus. And it comes from a heart of submission. Submission is the, is the more limited and, and often uh, t- temporary uh, uh, aspects of living out our obedience to God. Obedience is loyalty. But submission is a voluntary putting under from the heart, which means that there's limits to submission. It means that when you put yourself under, you defer. And in your heart, your, your, your heart's disposition before anything has been said or come to you, it, your heart's disposition is yes. So put this in the context of work. If you are submitting to your boss, then your heart's disposition is that before your boss ever comes and says, hey, this is the agenda for this week, this is what we need to do, your attitude is, whatever the boss says. That's, that's my attitude. Now, are there limits to it? Yes. But before you get to any limits, you have to recognize the disposition. Submission also, think about this, is agency. Because it's a choice, because it's something that you and I have to do from our hearts, there's agency involved. Just think about the fact that Peter addresses us and he calls us to it. When Peter says, submit yourselves to the Lord or submit to every governing authority, he says to, uh, he, he's appealing to your volition and he's reaching in and he's saying, let me have your heart. Choose this with me. There's agency involved. Verse 16, you'll notice, uh, how, how, where do you see agency? Look at verse 16. He says, live as free. That's an appeal. Not using your freedom as a cloak. Right? Don't live that way. You have a choice. You and I always have the option of revolt from the heart. God doesn't coerce us in that way. He doesn't grab the heart and force you to submit. He calls you to submission. That's why there's agency involved. And then in verse 18, you'll notice he he gives us an attitude that we should have with it. Verse 18 says, household slaves submit to your masters with all reverence. With all reverence. So in the heart, you can choose to submit yourself with a heart of reverence that's willing from a disposition of yes. And if you belong to Jesus, you've already said that to Jesus. That's why we're calling this big idea is that we have to be subject to him. Anything that God's going to call you to do as a Christian is going to flow out of your submission to Jesus. The fact that you've already said yes to him. So let's think about these two categories that he gives us here. So I told you there's three things. The first, the first one that we've been thinking about is that we have to be servants of God. Right? If we're going to be subject to Jesus, you have to be a servant of God. The second thing here is that we have to submit to every human authority. We have to submit to he- every human authority. Look at verse 13. 
Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as supreme as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him. Now, obviously, this is a complex issue because there are a thousand different moral crossroads at any given time. I'm sure several this week have been saying, I can't wait to find out what all the exceptions are. Yet the teaching itself is actually not complex. The Bible is consistent and clear on this. So write down these passages if, if, if that's kind of new to you or, or if, you're, if you're wanting to think more about this. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Very clear, the same thing except from Paul. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And then again in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. And then again in Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. The New Testament is very clear and very consistent in this teaching. So if you and I are looking for an out or an exception to try to get out from under this, I don't think we're going to find it in the New Testament. The problems come in when we start asking about all the exceptions and the complex situations that make obeying God difficult. So we'll think about that. But some of the big ones, obviously, you can think about, was was Dietrich Bonhoeffer right or wrong to participate in an assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler? Submit to all human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor or as the supreme authority. Was it right for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to try and kill Hitler? Should Chinese women submit to a one-child policy that forces them to have abortions if they get pregnant with a second child? Should, a 19th, century, should 19th century or 20th century Germans uh, use help the rail system that sends millions to a gas chamber? What about the government-sanctioned institutions like shadow slavery in America for three centuries? Surely the obvious answer is no. Surely. One of the arguments German officers made in their defense of of their crimes against humanity at the Nuremberg trials was that they were just following orders. And we can all agree, even when we don't know how to argue it, with the judge who dismissed this defense by saying, but gentlemen, is there not a law above our laws? And yet Peter writes these words to a maligned Christian minority as the orthodox Christian posture in the world. This is our starting point to answer those hard questions. Let that that help us. This is our starting point to ask the big questions where 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 we struggle. What I have found is that most people want to go straight to the big questions. I hear very few people, honestly, and I'm probably one of them, You'd have to tell me, but, but I hear very few people wanting to really ask, how do I obey this? Have you had any conversations like that in the last couple of years? Peter writes these things in spite of complexities, we have to wrestle with what's here. And realize what's here is what creates actually the complexities. If we didn't have these verses, well, then you're free to do what you want. If you can get away with, with, with revolt, then, then I guess you do it. 
Realize what's here is creating the complexities, but it's also the thing that guides us through it. It's a much easier position to say, submit to the government as long as it's working out for you. The basic tenets that are here, that are throughout the New Testament, are this. The first one is, in, is the very beginning of verse 13, is that we submit. We put ourselves up under, and our starting disposition is a yes. Our starting disposition has to be a yes. Otherwise, it's not submission. Otherwise, we're not in submission. We don't have that posture if we don't start there. So, to who? Well, you'll notice that he says to every human authority. Everyone. Literally, it says to every creature. So, commentators wrestle with whether or not he means to every single human or whether he means merely every single created institution. And there's arguments for both in this passage because if you define it immediately, then you have the emperor as the supreme and then you have governors in in verse 14. So it seems very clear there that he's advocating for honoring those who are in authority. But then if you look at verse 17, what does he say? Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's the same word for honor everyone, honor the emperor. So it may be a little bit of both. So the the English translations bring it out and they say, submit to every human authority. It's to everyone, the big ones and the lesser ones. So whether that's the president or whether that's the governor or whether that's the mayor or whoever's invested with the authority locally. Why? Why? He gives us several reasons. What's his first one? Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Now, what does he mean because of the Lord? Well, we don't really know. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us all the ways that we should reflect on because of the Lord. But in the, in the larger context, it seems to be at least because you belong to him and you represent him. You're a citizen of his kingdom. You bear his name. You're a stranger and an exile in this country. And so, therefore, you live out bearing his name. And so you, have, you need to submit because you represent him. When you and I revolt or, or push back, we represent that in the name of Jesus. So perhaps we should ask the question as we wrestle with things and we say, I push back. Perhaps you could, you could think about this, the thing that you wrestle with, with government, and you could say, I push back in the name of Jesus. And does that make sense? Because of the Lord. But also because he has ordained them to punish evil and reward good. There is a purpose for government. I realize that might be news. <laughs> there is a purpose for government. He says in verse 14, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. And this is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 13 when he says that the government has been given the sword to execute justice. And most of the time, government does do that. We're here in peace right this very moment. This is the result not of the goodwill of our neighbors. Right? We just watched, uh, I'm not necessarily advocating, there's a lot of language in this movie, but we just watched the movie Black Adam. And the, the movie, it's not that good either, but <laughs> the, the movie gets to the end and, and he, he, he's, he's now in the position to be the rightful king. And he's, he has the power and the authority to do everything good and to make it all right. And he sits down in the throne and they say, how does it feel? And he says, wrong. And he goes up into the sky and he comes down and he crushes the throne And the movie ends. And so the message is, there should be no king. (laughs) 
There should be no one in charge because the goodwill of the citizens will see to it that everything operates smoothly. No. (laughs) Never. Governments didn't come into existence because people do what's right. That's why, as I prayed earlier, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we should give thanks for those who are in authority. I understand we have our issues. I understand there's things we don't like. I get that. But we should start there. God has ordained them, and he ordained them for good. And the justice that we do see in this life is a result of that ordination of of authority. But there's also another reason why we should submit. Look at verse 15. He says, For it is God's will that you put to silence, or that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. The good submission that you and I have the opportunity to fulfill in our society is an opportunity to silence opposition against God. Remember, we're called to live honorably among the Gentiles. So if you and I are living in a world and we're trying to live out a life that's good, that monitor, or mirrors the character of God, in a world that's going to say, I don't like that, they're going to slander that. But as you do good, the objections will have to go away. Eventually, you cannot argue against what is right because what is good and what is right is good and it is right. The truth of God will not bend. That's why, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., who began this reflecting on, he said that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. That's because God is just. Now, recall their context, where he, the people that he writes this to. They were regarded as enemies of the state. Tacitus said that when Nero famously used Christians as the scapegoat for his Roman fire, at, uh, uh, a great uh, number were condemned at that time. Remember, he, uh, he, most people think that he burned Rome himself. He was burning it so that he could rebuild it in his own image. And while it was burning, you know, he famously was accused of playing, uh, playing music while that's, while that's happening. And the people turned against him on on the other side of that. And so he eventually used Christians. But he used Christians not because this was new. He used Christians because they were already despised in society. And so he was able to put that on them, and he killed many of them. You've read about that. You know about that. But Tacitus writes this. He says, They were condemned not so much for the fire itself, but for their hatred of humankind. For the hatred of humankind that Christians had. Hatred of humankind was the view of Christians that people in Rome had because so much of Roman culture, the theater, army, uh, serving in military service, uh, the way letters were written and, and, and uh, the things that were advocated for, the way sports transpired, heavily involved pagan worship. So Christians conscientiously objected all the time. And he said, I can't participate in this, and I I won't participate in this. And so people in Rome, in the Roman Empire, said, you must hate humanity. You must hate our country. You're a bigot. You're the problem with this nation. That's the environment these people are living in that he writes these words to. So those things that people are saying are ignorant. Ignorant. Because the Christians who are resisting pagan worship are doing what is honorable among the Gentiles. He says, if you do what is good, you'll, you'll put it to silence. Look at 1 Peter 
uh, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. You get a little sample of this right here in the letter. He says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They call you enemies of the state. Not too far off from some of the rhetoric used against Christians today. Isn't it the case that many small business owners are labeled bigots and drug into court for not celebrating homosexuality? Isn't it the case that many people, like a brother I just heard about this week in Massachusetts, was laid off for, or suspended from his work for a month without pay for asking an honest question when he challenged something in the diversity, equity, inclusion training that he was in? Isn't it the case when pro-life in the media is transformed into anti-choice rhetoric to slander Christians? God's will is that those kinds of ignorant foolishness would be silenced as you submit to government. He has a bigger agenda than the way you and I feel about any given policy. Here's the point. If we live as God's servants, verse 17, or 16, we will do what is truly good when, even, when it's even called evil. And this will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Some people will see those things and they will convert and they will, they will recognize it and they will say, you know what, that's right. And it happens to you when you stand up at work sometime or you share the gospel in the break room and later on somebody finds you and they say, hey, will you pray for me? Can we talk about this? I'm having trouble with my marriage. Because they see you doing what is honorable. And so you have to keep doing that. But on the last day, everyone will see it. Okay, so you say, well, what about the exceptions? Well, let's try to get to that through this second category where we're supposed to live out the gospel as God's slaves. The third thing here is that we should submit to human and I'm putting this in scare quotes, masters. Submit to human, quote, masters. Verse 18 says, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Now, just like the teachings about submission to governing authorities, the apostles' teaching that slaves should submit to their masters is consistent and clear. So much so that people often accuse the Bible as sustaining the institution of slavery. And some people wickedly use the Bible in that way. And, and, and let us just say that the Bible is not condoning and is not trying to support it. In fact, the most powerful subversive letter that we have against slavery is Paul's letter to Philemon when he sends back Onesimus and he shames him into receiving him back as a, as a slave and instead says you should receive him as a brother. Because to merely release Onesimus from slavery and make him a freedman would still not elevate him to full status in society. He would be a freedman only. But if he's a brother, then he's equal with Philemon. That subverts the entire institution and is, in our own uh, history, what brought about the end of the slave trade in the West. Note that you and I bring our baggage of American history to verses like this. 
And we can't help it, but we've got to work to take that out of the foreground so that you and I can hear the passage. And after we understand the New Testament's teachings, then you can go back and try to wrestle with the, answer, or the questions that we have about our own nation's uh, history. So what does he mean here when he says household servants? Well, this is a specific category of slaves in the Roman Empire. There were all kinds. Some were, some were, some were um, restricted to mines. Some were restricted to uh, boats. But these are household servants, probably because these are people that would actually be present in the congregation when being read. If you were in those other contexts, you probably weren't there. And a household servant is a different word than slave. It's not the same word that we have in verse 16 where it says that we're slaves of God. But largely it was an economic and social standing in society. And in fact, many kinds of employment today were considered slave jobs at that time. Jobs like property managers, teachers, doctors, tutors, all of these fit that category of a slave in a Roman empire. It included people who were captured as prisoners of war, uh, 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 criminals who were being punished and sentenced to these, these uh, positions. Uh, sometimes it was people who had been kidnapped. Some people were born, in, born into it. And then in some cases, it was indentured servitude. It was where people maybe got into trouble or wanted to, they saw a pathway forward to increase their social standing by entering into a period of indentured ser- servitude until they earned enough money to buy, buy their freedom back and they would have a higher standing after that. So the Roman world of slavery is much different than what you and I imagine in in American history. So you have to bring that into the way that you think about all of this. It's something in between modern employment. Some of you have rough employment situations and you say, amen. And shadow slavery on the other side. Some people's experience in the Roman world would have been like being being owned as property. But some people on the other end would have had great freedom and social standing, even though they were a slave. But all of them were slaves. All of them had a master. And the masters had great freedom. And slaves had very little rights to appeal of the treatment that they would receive. So in that context, he says to those in that setting, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Actually, verse 18 tells you, you could have a cruel master or a good one. And for some in these congregations, it meant suffering unjustly. That's verse 19. And if you suffered unjustly, it might just produce physical beatings on the job. So in no way do I want to make light of any of their situations. But honestly, in order to apply this, think about this, the way that you and I complain about our bosses Consider the audience of this letter and what they endured and what the call there to them was. Surely we can work hard at our places of employment. Surely we can earn the paycheck we get. Surely we can go without bad-mouthing the person over us. Surely. Being a servant of God will necessarily sometimes put you at odds with a master or a boss. And there will be things someone is told to do Uh, or someone tells you to do, that you simply cannot do if you're going to be faithful to Jesus. And that's why we obey Jesus, but submit to authorities. Submission never includes doing what is evil in God's sight. Never. So if you're thinking about these and how to apply it in your life, and you're in a situation where someone's telling you to do something that God clearly says not to do, you should not do that. 
don't submit there. Because you obey, you're a slave of Jesus, and you obey him. Acts, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, we must obey God rather than men. So Peter acknowledges his readers are going to encounter situations where submission to a master is going to cut against obedience to God. And in those cases, we obey God. The point is that these undesirable circumstances present an opportunity for the Christian. Mark this, when you are in a situation that you don't want to submit to, and, and, and the people who are over you are unjust, they're wrong, or just maybe making dumb decisions. That is an opportunity as a Christian for the sake of the Lord to submit, to show good works that on the day of visitation will glorify God, and in the process, worship him and follow in the footsteps of the master. That's why verse 21 says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, before you raise any objections, Christian, let's just remember the basis for these ethical commands. Jesus left us the pattern for living as a servant of God. His vicarious sacrifice was substituting himself in our place. Verse 21 says, and, and let, the, let, these word, like, let your eyes hit these words and think about them. Christ suffered for you. As you think about perhaps suffering in an unjust government, Jesus suffered for you. Perhaps in a unjust, as an unjust slave being beaten unjustly, Jesus suffered for you. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus' pattern of substituting himself, the just, for the unjust, is the pattern for us to submit to governing authorities and and social authorities. The entire basis of our existence as Christians is this truth. That Jesus suffered unjustly so that the guilty might go free. So that the punishment of our sins deserved by us was placed on him, even though he didn't commit any sin at all. So much so that when he was sinned against, look at what he says in verse 23. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus was the only one who was truly unjust, or who was truly just, and treated unjustly in every way. And Jesus' example was to submit himself to it. Jesus' example was not to revile. Jesus' example was not to fight. Jesus' example was to die. And and, And this passage says that that is our example It means that, Christian, our lives, to live honorably among the Gentiles, has to take the shape of a cross. Our heart's disposition has to have the cross at the center of it. The way in which you interact with authority has to have the cross in the center of it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what God is calling you to. Sure, he's calling you to serve him. But what he means is lay down your life and give it to him because Jesus has already laid down his life for you if you will repent and believe in his son. Now you say, okay, I hear you. I hear all of this and it's late. 
Peter, however, never endured, endured the atrocities of the Biden administration or the Trump administration. Peter never had a leader like that. Did he? At the time he wrote this, a 27-year-old was reigning in Rome, burning the city. You say, well, at least Peter didn't have to pay taxes to that kind of regime. Or did he? At least he could trust that Nero wouldn't take his freedom away. Except he was arrested. Okay, well, at least Nero respected his country. He burned Rome. Well, at least Peter was never killed by his own government, except he was beheaded. He was crucified upside down. Sorry, Paul was beheaded. All by the same guy. The fact is, is that we aren't facing anything like this. And Peter writes these words. We haven't faced it and we're not facing it. And Paul submitted himself to death. Truth be told, most of the time, the government does keep the peace the way it's supposed to. And what we hear most and focus on is when they don't. But when they don't, we need first to remember that God promises to hold the governments of the world accountable. And he will. Part of God's promise is that Jesus is coming. There will be a day of visitation. And in that day, all will be called to account. In truth, most of us are not taking to the streets in violence, but most of us are paying taxes, voting, and being good neighbors. The problem is less with our actions and more with our hearts and our mouth. Our disposition is against submission. So my question is this. If we're to submit to all governing authorities, show everyone respect, in what way does your passion for politics and your verbal concentration fulfill these verses? Or to put it in the words of verse 12, how do your politics demonstrate honor among the Gentiles? Or let's take it one step further. Not that you can't criticize something that's wrong. It's not that you can't say that this is a bad policy. We need something different. But as you do that, would people say, this man is entrusting himself to the Lord who judges justly. This woman is a woman who is free in the Lord Jesus. Would people say that? Okay, there are recourse, and I'll try to get to those next week. But church, we have an example. We have an example in Jesus. And and what he's calling us to appeals to our volition to give ourselves to God. And you have a choice. At any time, you can revolt against these commands. You can say, I'm not going to do that. But that's not faithful to Christ. What he's calling us to do is to work out what these verses mean and live it out. And and when we struggle to do it, he tells us, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. What did Jesus do in front of Pilate? What did Paul do? What What did Peter do? That's your example. And if he can do that, well, then we can honor everyone. We can love the brotherhood. We can honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words. These are hard. These are not easy to figure out how to apply in all kinds of situations. But God, we pray that you would help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.